Praise the Lord. Uh, welcome to session three of the series, uh, the Revelation of the Apostolic Church Structure for Revival and Harvest, or uh, in other words, the Revelation of the Care Ministry Concept. Uh, very briefly, I'd like to remind you that in the last session, session two, we talked about, uh, or focused on Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through uh, chapter 6, verse 3, and Paul talking about the need for the church to advance from the principles of the doctrine of Christ and to reach a place of perfection and remind you that the word perfection means uh, completeness, maturity, or fruitfulness. We talked in, in length, at length, about the, uh, the need for a church collectively and for people individually to come to a place of maturity in Christ and the, the outward proof or the demonstration that they've reached that place of maturity is the fruitfulness in their lives. In this session, session three, we're going to go into uh, a, a deeper depth of the, the principles of the care ministry in scripture. To, to do that, I have a lengthy reading here. I'd like to read to you from Exodus 18 beginning with verse 24. Exodus 18, 24. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning unto evening? And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge that between one and the other, and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, this is shocking, the thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee, for thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, and rulers of hundreds, and rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. If thou do this thing, listen carefully, if thou do this thing, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. The concept of one man leading a large group of people, using a structured leadership system, involving saints is first found with Moses and Israel. And this is an amazing set of scriptures here, quite frankly. 
I want you to notice that two whole chapters before God gave the revelation of the law, God gave the revelation of what would become an apostolic church structure. I'm sure I'll be saying this later, but I want to say it right here. Whenever God institutes or introduces a new principle or concept of His, He always introduces it in an application that is at its extreme. When He gave us the baptism of the Holy Ghost to prove the power of the Holy Ghost in our lives, from the first moment that we fully received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, He tamed our most unruly member of the tongue. The principle being, according to James, that if God's able to tame our most unruly member, then that demonstrates He has power in our lives over everything else that could possibly be a problem in our lives. So He took the extreme and He proved that His ability and His concept and His principles would work in the most extreme example that you could imagine. When God instituted the concept of how to lead a church, how to lead a congregation of people. He instituted it at its extreme. He had one man that led a new nation out of bondage in Egypt. When Israel went into Egypt, it went in as a family of 70, not counting Joseph and his wife and children. Just 70 people. Jacob, his sons, their wives, their children, etc., When they came out of Egypt, depending on which scholar you're reading, what estimates are made, there there were approximately between 2 and 4 million people in that very first congregation. Exodus 12, they're called a congregation. And from Exodus 12 to Exodus Exodus 18, Moses was leading that group of 2 to 4 million people in a single congregation. He was leading it like traditional religion and traditional Pentecost leads a church. He was one man, one voice, speaking to all those people. I don't even know how he did that, but that was the responsibility. Plus, every day, from evening until dark, he would sit and people would line up to come to him and bring their problems. They'd come seeking to know the will of God. They'd come with their questions and and problems, and he would sit there all day. Well, Jethro, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, the Bible calls him a prophet. And he, when he came to meet Moses and bring Moses' wife and sons to Moses because they had stayed in the with Jethro when when Moses came back to lead uh, Israel out of bondage in Egypt, when he came and saw what was going on. He was disturbed by this. He was disturbed by it. And the scriptures that I've read to you are really the account of God speaking through Jethro to the man of God, Moses, very pointedly, very specifically, about what he was doing and why it wasn't working and how to fix it. I must say to you today that very, very, very few apostolic churches today do anything remotely close to what God showed Moses was the way to lead a congregation. Very few. This church in its history existed over 12 years 
before we had such growth that it put our traditional efforts under such load that they broke down, they failed, and we couldn't handle all those people. And out of desperation, seeking God, he gave us a revelation of this structure, this structure contained in Exodus 18, and how we could take care of God's people. And he had a plan for it. God had a plan. He had a way to do it. He had a way to do it. And, and, and just give me a moment here. I want, to, I, I want to go back through these scriptures a little bit before I go on to, to the rest of my subject matter in these notes uh, or for this session. When, when, I want you to notice what Jethro said to Moses. Moses thought he was doing what was expected of him. He was sitting there, and the people would line up, and they'd come, and he'd sit there all day long, and, and, and he thought this was noble. He thought this was what God expected him to do. He thought this was what the people expected. Well, it wasn't what God expected. And notice the language. Jethro says to Moses, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Not for the people. In, in Moses' mind, he was probably doing it for the people. But in God's mind, he was doing it to the people. Why sittest thyself alone and... All the people stand by thee from morning until to evening. Well, Moses gives him this noble answer because the people come unto me to inquire of God. And, and, and when they have a matter, they come to me and I judge between one another and I do make, do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Oh, that sounds wonderful. It sounds noble. Except, except this, was, this was Jethro's response, the prophet Jethro's response to Moses. The thing that thou doest is not good. Not good. Not good. What? Wait a minute. Wait. Wait a minute. I, you, you mean I've been a pastor all these years, and and I visit all these hospitals, and and I I make all these counseling appointments, and I talk to all these people, and and they come to me to inquire of God, and I give them answers and, and whatever, and, and God says this isn't good. That's what the book says. Now, are you going to argue for the way you've always done it? For the way you've always seen it done? Are you going to argue with the scripture? For your traditional approach? Are you going to say, okay, okay, Lord, I was only doing the best I could. I was only doing what I knew to do. Which, that's all any of us can do. Okay, Lord, I was just, I was just doing that. But if you've got another way, if you've got a better way, Lord, if you've got a, if your way is more scriptural, more biblical, and more effective, then I want to know what it is, and I'm willing, by your help, your grace, to do that. I pray today that's your attitude over this. Whether, I'm, whether you're a pastor, a senior leader of the church, one of the other ministry leaders or, or participants in ministry, or you're a member of the church that's listening to this lesson, I pray that's your attitude. Here's what Jethro said was the problem. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee. I think today we call it burnout. For a man to get burned out, he may be doing what he thinks is right, but if it's not what God's ordered, then he gets burned out. We don't get burned out doing what God has ordered through God's empowerment and strengthening us. We don't get burned out. If I'm under pressure and I get burnt out, whatever I'm doing, either God didn't order it or I'm doing it through my own strength. 
And Jethro prophesied by the word of the Lord to Moses that the way you're doing it's not good and you're going to wear away both thou and this people that is with thee. This thing is too heavy for thee, for thou art, not, thou art not able to bear it alone. You're not able to do this alone. You can't do this alone. It's not possible for you to do this by yourself. So listen to what he says now. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Here's what, you, here's what your part is, Moses. Here's what your part is. Be thou for the people to Godward that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them their, them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Here, here's, your, here, here, here's your responsibility, Moses. You're supposed to pray for the people, and bring the people to God. You're supposed to teach them the Word of God. You're supposed to teach them how to walk with God. And... You're supposed to tell them what the work is that they should be doing. Let me tell you what. That work is not sitting in a church service regularly and thinking you've got it all done. They had a work to do. God has a work planned for his people. And Jethro prophesied to Moses that God wanted him to tell the people, not only to pray for the people, but not to tell the people the word of God, how to live, and what work that they must do. Moreover, Jethro says, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men. Now, let me tell you why that's significant. Because later on in Numbers, when Moses said to God, I need some help personally, and the Lord said, I'll give you 70 elders, the scripture specifically says that the 70 elders were taken from among the elders of Israel. But these leaders that Jethro's prophesying about, they're not taken from among the elders. They're taken from among the people. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, here's their qualifications, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. In other words, they're not going to be doing this for their personal gain. That's big point. They're not looking to be well-known, they're not looking to be famous, they're not looking to have their own following. Covetousness is just not, about, it's not just about money. Covetousness is coveting any personal gain, whether it's recognition or benefit or finances. It doesn't make any difference. So they had to be men that fear God, reverence God, men, men of truth, and men that weren't in it for what they could get out of it. And these are the people you should place over them. And this is the structure. Put some in, in a position of ruling over thousands. And under them, put rulers of hundreds. So that means there would be ten rulers of hundreds working under one ruler of a thousand. And then put rulers over fifties. So that every ruler of a hundred have two supervisors over fifty that's working under him. And then under the rulers of fifties, put rulers of tens. Now, whether that's ten people or ten different family, immediate family units, it can be argued both ways. I don't know if it's an issue in the context of this lesson right now. The point being that if you got one person, take care of just ten. And then you've got a person that's over 50, what he's really doing is supervising 
five different people who are over 10. Then the person that's over 100, they're really supervising the two people who are over 50, and then through them, the 10 people over hundreds. And then the guy that's in senior supervision, he's over 1,000. That means he's supervising 10 different men who are over 100, each of which is over 250s, each of which is over 5 liters of 10. That's a structure. That is a leadership structure from among the people. Obviously, Moses and Aaron at this point in time would be over all of that structure, and then later, of course, the 70 elders joining with Moses and Aaron would have been over that same structure, helping to supervise that same structure. Now, of course, all of that was collected up into 12, 12 different tribes. 12 different tribes. So there was one nation or one congregation, and that congregation was divided up into 12 tribes, and each one of those tribes had a part of that, a structure of leadership from among the people to do all that. Now, here's what those people were supposed to be doing. Let them judge the people at all seasons. And it shall be that every great matter, the most significant stuff, they'll bring it to you. But every small matter, they shall judge. And this will be easier for thyself, and they'll bear the burden with you. And, and notice this, this, this last verse here, verse 23. If thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so. Now, Moses is a pretty significant person in the realm of God's kingdom and God's work and God's plan and God's book. And if God, as great as Moses was, if God commanded Moses to institute this structure in Israel, can I look God in the face and say, I'm not doing that in this church. That's not the way we've done it. I'm not doing that here. Can you really do that? Is it really possible? In Exodus 12 and many other places, Israel was called a congregation by the Lord. Moses, and this is a little bit of summary of what I've been saying, Moses first tried to lead by himself. He tried to do that. Well, my wife and I started this church with just the two of us. Of necessity, in the beginning, for months, actually years, uh, we did have to lead it by ourselves. But I will tell you this, it wasn't long after we began to pray people through the Holy Ghost that we began to identify people who were truly committed and wanted to be involved, and we began training them almost right away. Almost right away. This is a critical, critical point. It's a critical point. I will be saying this later, but the definition of a disciple is a taught or trained one. By definition, you can't make a disciple through preaching. We all love to preach. Preaching is fun. Preaching is exciting. Preaching is entertaining. Entertaining for the people that's listening. Entertaining for the preacher himself. But biblically and by definition, you cannot make a disciple when all that goes on in church is preaching. When that's it. There has to be teaching. Teaching, 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 teaching. If you want people to grow, you want people to mature, they have to be taught. They have to be taught. God wanted Moses to spend more time with him. God wanted Moses to lead the people to him. God wanted Moses 
to handle only the very important matters. God wanted Moses to provide the people with an opportunity to participate. God wanted Moses to do that for his people. He wanted his people included in ministry. He wanted his people included in the work of the Lord, not just being spectators in a church service. Moses was instructed by God to select others from among the people to help him lead. And God commanded him to do that. God commanded it. I want you to note that this revelation of God's structure is for leading a large growing congregation. uh, Of God's structure for leading a large growing congregation was actually given to Moses two chapters before God gave him the law. I've already said that, but I'm saying it again for summary and for emphasis. Two chapters. The law was given in Exodus 20. This revelation of church structure, of how to lead the people of God, to lead the congregation of Israel, was given to Moses two whole chapters before that. When God establishes a principle the first time, He always uses the most extreme example to establish the divine origin of the principle. He did this with a structure for a church. I know I've already talked about that, but I'm reminding you of it again. He always does it. In everything God does, when He establishes something initially, He does it in the extreme so that nobody has an excuse to say that won't work for us. It will work. This same concept is clearly found in the New Testament. Uh, The apostles in the early church found themselves just as overextended as Moses did. We find this account in Acts chapter 6 beginning with verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians among the Hebrews against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples together and said, It is not reasonable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out from among look ye out among you seven men of honest report for the Holy Ghost and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That that verse 4 kind of just summarizes what Jethro told Moses his job was. Pray for the people, teach them the word, teach them the way they should live, and tell them the work they must do. Isn't that exactly... Uh, in more detail what, what the apostles said they were going to do. So they took men, verse 5 says, and the, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip and Prochorus, Prochorus and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, uh, and Nicholas, uh, whether those are pronounced correctly or not, I think you got the idea, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. For what? For the ministry of overseeing the waiting on tables. And the word of the Lord, word of God, increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. That's an amazing set of scriptures. Notice there had been a multiplication of disciples at the beginning of that text, in fact, the problem was because of the multiplication of the disciples. It says, and when the number of disciples multiplied, but there was a greater increase and a greater multiplication of disciples after the structure was put in place. 
after the structure was put in place. The apostles, because they were overloaded and they were so involved, it was hindering them from their primary responsibilities in ministries. So they did this. They appointed others to help them lead the people. They devoted themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the result was the number of disciples was multiplied. The Lord's answer to this situation parallels his answer to Moses in Exodus 18. Listen to this. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave, the Lord, gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For what reason? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen to verse 12 from the Amplified. His intention was the perfecting and the full equipping of the saints, his consecrated people, that they should do the work of ministering toward building up Christ's body, the church. We expanded translation of the New Testament, translate it this way. That he gave the, the, the five-fold gifting ministry to the church for the equipping of the saints for ministering work with a view to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, my friends, brothers and sisters, those of you that are sitting, listening to this lesson, watching it. <laughs> this is uh, not prevalent in the apostolic church. The five-fold gifting was not given to conduct church services. They didn't say that. They may conduct church services as a part of their duties, but it's not the primary focus of their ministry. It's not the primary focus of their calling. What? Why were they given to the church? Those five giftings, apostolic gifting, prophetic gifting, evangelistic gifting, pastoral gifting, and teaching gifting, why, were, why does the Bible say they were given to the church? I'll remind you, in the original Greek text, there was no punctuation. I don't know why the translators of the King James put commas in verse 12. I don't know why they did that. Because when they did that, it seems as though they broke their, the work of those five-fold giftings of ministry up into three different parts. Perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry, meaning they did the work of the ministry, and so the church could grow. But that's not the way the Greek reads. That's not the, that's not the way the Greek reads. And both the Amplified and Weiss Expanded Translation of the New Testament are the two translations, along with Young's literal translation, that attempts to, to, to literally translate the Greek text more than translate it for readability. So you get the nuances and the definitions. Notice in, in both of these translations, there is no breaking up these three things into three parts. That doesn't, they're not broken up. And so a very literal translation of verse 12 would be this. God gave the fivefold giftings to the church that they would fully equip. That's what that word perfecting means in this, that Greek word translated perfecting that they would fully equip the saints 
to do the work of their ministry that the church may grow thereby. And especially the Amplified says almost exactly that. His intention, God's intention in giving these fivefold giftings was the perfecting and the full equipping of the saints that they should do the work of ministering toward building up Christ's body, the church. Hear me right now. Biblically, it cannot be proven biblically that you can bu- that you build a church from a pulpit. It can't. Jesus said the field's the world. The field is the world. Okay, we sow seeds in a field. The seed comes up, it grows. We go out and reap the harvest. We bring the sheaves in. We thresh them. We winnow them. We sift them. And then we store them in the barn. The sheaves don't come to the barn. Sheaves come to the threshing floor. The focus of ministry is not the barn. The focus of ministry is the field. But in the traditional Pentecostal approach, we, get, we want all of our people to get a wheelbarrow and go out in the field and shovel in a whole wheelbarrow full of dirt and we wheel it back to the church, the barn, and we dump it on the floor. We got this big pile of dirt and then the pastor stands in the pulpit and sows seed on that pile of dirt. Then when church is dismissed, everybody gets their wheelbarrow and they shovel all that dirt that hopefully was some seed in it back into their wheelbarrow and then they wheel it back out to wherever they got it from hopefully and they put it back out in the field. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. There is no biblical basis for our approach. The barn is not the focal place of the ministry. The field is the focus, focal point of the ministry. Jesus didn't tell the sinner to come. He told the church to go. To go. But our traditional structure doesn't promote that. In fact, most of the efforts of our traditional structure is to get people to come. We're all trying, trying to build a crowd. Nothing wrong with a crowd, but we're trying to build a crowd. We're trying to build a crowd. Rather than getting the saints, equipping the saints for ministry, not just equipping them, fully equipping them for ministry, and then sending them out that they may do the work of their ministry, so the church can grow thereby. You don't build a church from pulpit. You don't build a church from pulpit. Pulpit ministry is vitally important. It's essential. It's necessary. You can't do without it. But you can't build a church from the pulpit. Just like the shepherd doesn't produce the sheep. He just cares for the flock. And if the flock's well cared for, then the, the, the female sheep, the ewes, will uh, conceive and they'll birth lambs and the, the flock will grow but not because the shepherd is the one begetting the sheep. The sheep beget the sheep. The shepherd takes care of the flock. The focus of ministry is not the barn, it's the field. It's the the field. The focus of ministry is the field, not the barn. But in our traditional ministries, it's the barn. Everything's focused around the barn. The church of the New Testament was a home-based ministry. Acts 7.48 says, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as the prophet, as saith the prophet. 
just a little side side note here. There is no evidence that any church anywhere in the world owned its own building or had a building that a public building for church services that was the focus of their ministry till 315 AD. Why is that important? Because Constantine had ruled that Christianity was the state religion. And I won't go into all that story from history, but because he claims that he saw a vision of the cross and through the and, and heard the voice and this sign conquer uh, when he defeated the western uh, excuse me the eastern part of the Roman Empire and he consolidated again uh, he he uh, he declared Christianity to be the state religion. Well, there was a problem with that because all these rich people and all these government people they were pagans and they believed in multiple gods. Uh, they also had built many, many, many beautiful edifices uh, to their pagan gods. Well, they were upset because the church was meeting in homes. And especially in those areas where they were persecuted, they didn't even meet publicly. They met in homes. So in 315 A.D., ten years before the first council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., where Constantine oversaw, an unbaptized believer oversaw that church council where they, they began to take away the apostolic message of the one God, the mighty God in Christ. God manifest the flesh. And dividing him up in three persons, actually in Council of Nicaea, dividing him up in two per- persons. It wasn't until the Council of Trent in 383 A.D. that the third person was added to the Trinity. In that situation, ten years before, there was the cathedral edict. And Constantine ordered the churches to meet in the Foreman pagan temples. Now, that was the beginning of change. That was the beginning of change. Uh, he could the, the, the people that were not converted to Christianity weren't willing to go to homes. They wanted to go to those beautiful temples. And those people that were willing to trade power and influence for truth they gave themselves over to participate in, in the in in uh, uh, Constantine structure now we have a church a church facility here I don't believe it's sin to have a church facility I'm not preaching against a church facility but it is not possible biblically to justify focusing the ministry of a church around a facility. It's not possible. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? The church building is not the church. It's not the church. We call it the church. It's not the church. The people of the church. The people of the temple of God. Not the building. Not the facility. What we call the church is simply a facility where the church meets. But wherever the church meets, it would be the church. The Greek word translated church is ekklesia, which means the assembly of the called out ones. That's what the word church means. It's the called out ones assembling. It didn't say where, what kind of facility they, they, they assembled in. Over the years here, in our first 12 years in town, we used 22 different facilities in our growing church we'd fill up a place and have to move on 
Sometimes we were using two or three different, four different facilities simultaneously for each of the different ministries we had going. We had to do that. We didn't have any other choice. It was the church, whether it was in a school auditorium or in a, a community hall or in a, a building that was quote-unquote built as a church or some storefront that we remodeled. It was the, still the church. It wasn't, it wasn't less of a church because of the facility it was meeting in. It was the church. The word church in the Bible never refers to a building or a facility. Ever. Ever. If we're going to be apostolic, aren't we going to go by, believe, practice what the apostles taught and practiced? Again, I'm not preaching against or teaching against a church having a facility. But how many churches are so overloaded with the pressure, the financial pressure, and the, and the time commitment of, of, of a facility, of trying to keep that facility up, keep the grass mowed, and keep the building clean, and keep it painted, and keep everything in order, and, and, and make the payments, and the insurance, and, and, the, and the utilities, and oh, it's on and on. So many times as a pastor, I, I, I felt like I was pastoring a building and pastoring a mortgage, not pastoring people. That's a pretty common theme among preachers. Now, when that building, that facility, stops being a blessing, it becomes a curse. Why don't we do something about that? Our church currently has 21 different groups that meet on Sunday morning. Our mortgage payment, we have an auditorium here that seats between 800 and 1,000, where our mother church meets on Sunday morning. Our church payment for that is about $20,000 a month. Seats for less than a thousand, cost us twenty thousand dollars a month. But we rent twenty other facilities, and the total seating capacity of those other twenty facilities is somewhere between four and five thousand people. And our rent on of the ones we have to pay rent on, our rent on all of those is somewhere in the neighborhood of three and four thousand dollars a month. Now, if you're going to have a facility. Why not use facilities that aren't costing a huge amount of money? The word church never refers to a building in the Bible. It always refers to the people who are meeting, not the place where they were meeting. For instance, first, Ephesians 1.22 refers to the church universal. Uh, verse 22, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.1 refers to the church in a city. Paul and Savannah and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The, church, the city was Thessalonica, and he talked to the church in a city. Romans 16.5 refers to the church in a private home. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved well beloved. Epaphitus, <laughs> who is the first fruits of Acacia unto Christ. So we've got the word church referring to the church universal. We've got the word church used to refer to a church in a geographical area. We've got the word church used to refer to the church in a home. Not one time anywhere in the scripture is the word church used to refer to a church in a public facility or to refer to a public facility as the church. 
In the Old Testament, there was a building. It was called the temple. At first, it was called a tabernacle. It was a tent. Then it was called a building. And God dwelt there. But in the New Testament, I'm the temple. You're the temple. We are the temple. Not a building. Not a building. We're the temple. This is God's plan. This is the way, this is the concept we've got to have. This is the way we've got to see it. If we're trying to win people to a facility, if we're trying to impress people with a facility, if we're trying to draw people to our facility, we're not drawing them to Christ. We may be drawing them to a corporate entity, uh, hopefully a non-profit corporate entity, call it a church. We're not drawing them to Christ. That's not what this is all about. We're not going to reach the world by building a bunch of church buildings. When the scripture talks about house to house, it's the translated of the Greek word K-A-T-O-I-K-O-N, which can mean various private homes. Acts 2.46, the church first met daily in the temple and from house to house. In Acts 5.42, this pattern continued long after the day of Pentecost. Acts 5.42 says, And they met daily in the temple, and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. In, Matthew, in Acts 12.12, 12, they prayed in the house of Mary. And when the, it, verse 12.12 12 says, Acts 12.12, 12, And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Acts 28, Paul, 20 verse 8, Paul taught the upper chambers of a house. Acts 20, verse 8, And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. Acts 20, 20, Paul said he taught from house to house. Acts 20, 20, Paul says, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Verse 28 says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. You don't feed a building. You feed people. People who are spiritually God's sheep. This was Paul's ministry. He taught publicly, and he taught them house to house. Where is that ministry in the average apostolic church today? Where is that ministry? Where is that concept? A home is a more personal and private place to meet than a church building. It's a more personal and private place to meet. It's, it's much easier to have spiritual fellowship and spiritual intimacy in a home. All the early assemblies specifically mentioned in the Bible were in homes. For instance, Acts 16, 3-5, or excuse me, Romans 16, verses 3-5, through 5, and 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Uh, I'll read, first of all, Romans 16, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute, well-beloved Panitus, and all, who is the first crucifixion unto Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. The churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Philemon had a church in his home. Philemon 1, 2. And to our beloved Epipha and Archippus, obviously I don't do well with these names, 
our fellow soldier, and to the church in their house. Uh, Colossians 4.15, Nympus had a church in his home. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nympus and the church which is in his house. Acts 28.30-31, the book of Acts ends with Paul holding a care group meeting, a church in his home. Paul was under house arrest in Rome. They allowed him to have his own house, but he was under house arrest. He couldn't go out to the people. He couldn't go preach publicly. But the scripture says this, And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching those things which which concerned the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence and no man forbidding him. This is a very critical lesson. I've given you many, many verses that show how the word church is used. Why don't you stop for a moment individually, whether you're a preacher, a leader, saint in the church, and ask yourself the question, is this how I use the word? Is this the way I apply the word? Is this what I see church to be? Is this how I look at the church? Is this it? Now, Moses didn't have a church in the wilderness. He had a congregation. And his ministry, and the ministry of the apostles and trying to serve the widows in the early church when so many people were getting saved, they dealt with the difficulty of dealing with such a large crowd. But as the church progressed from the day of Pentecost, as the groups grew, as they spread out into other geographical regions, because it all began in Jerusalem, how did they, how did they take those ministries and that concept that God gave Moses in Exodus 18 and that the apostles applied in Acts chapter 6, how did they continue to apply it? Well, for almost 300 years after the birth of the church, they focused on ministry and not facility. I'm going to ask you again, pastor, leader, people, is your church and its program, its schedule, its calendar, is it facility focus or is it people focus? Is it ministry focus? Is it traditional in concept and function? Or is it apostolic? You want church? You want growth? You want to see increase? You want to see harvest? You want to see people get saved and stay saved? Then you have to apply the apostolic principles. You have to apply the apostolic principles. If you don't apply the apostolic principles, then you're going to get what you're applying. You're going to get an institution. You're going to get a body of people that just come together out of obligation. You're going to get people participating in religion. You're going to get people that don't grow, that don't mature spiritually, that don't become fruitful. They don't ever know the joy and the thrill of being used of God. They don't ever, they don't help bear the responsibility of ministry so that everybody can have peace and rest. They don't, none of those things happen. Preacher, you may ask, is it that simple? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. 
It really is that simple. It really is that simple. It really is as simple as examining everything that we do and how we do it and where we do it in the light of Scripture. It's that simple. We have to examine it all in the light of Scripture. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it doesn't originate with biblical concepts and biblical applications, then no matter how refined our structure looks, no matter how polished it looks, how, 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 how impressive it may be to man, it's not going to produce fruit. It may produce stuff. It may produce people. It may produce converts, but it won't produce fruit. You can produce converts through the flesh. You can't produce disciples to the flesh. You can't bring people to a place of truly becoming disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ like that. You can't do it. God bless you. I know that this things have been said in this that are they're really difficult to hear. Put yourself in Moses' place. What's your response going to be? I'm not Jethro. I'm not proposing that I am Jethro. But this is Jethro's message. Put yourself in Moses' place. What is your attitude going to be with Jethro talking to you? What's your response going to be? What are you going to do about Jethro's message? And God command thee so. If you'll do this thing, he said, and God command thee so. That statement alone tells me that in God's mind, these things aren't optional. I'm going to say it to you again. I've said it in previous sessions. I was born in the United Pentecostal Church. My mother was attending United Pentecostal Church when I was born. My very first Sunday of life. I was born on a Monday. She took me to two services on Sunday. I've been there all my life. I'm not being critical. I'm not being judgmental of anyone. But please, is what we're doing really working? Is it really working? Is it doing what he promised it was supposed to do? The proof's in the fruit. The Lord told us we could be fruit readers. He said, you shall know them by their fruit. Well, if I can know people by their fruit, then I can know methods by their fruit. And I can know concepts by their fruit. And I can know a structure by its fruit. And so can you. God bless you. Jesus' name.